1: They talk about planned military operations against Pakistani targets. As you know, al-Qaeda tried to kill General Musharraf on at least two occasions. And uh, the Pakistanis had arrested quite a number of key al-Qaeda leaders, not least Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, yet the operational commander of
0: 9-11. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 4th, 2021. The U.S. raid on the compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, that brought Osama bin Laden to ultimate justice also recovered nearly half a million files. In 2017, these files were publicly released, but few people have both the expertise and the experience and the time to go through those materials, as well as interview family members of bin Laden and former associates to try to paint a full picture of the man. One person who fits that description is Peter Bergen, the author or editor of eight books, including Holy War Inc., the definitive early study of Bin Laden and Al Qaeda. Peter is also vice president at New America and a national security analyst for CNN. Most recently, he is author of The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden, a cradle to grave biography that takes advantage of a lot of this new material. I sat down in the virtual jungle studio with Peter to talk about Bin Laden's evolution from a shy, humble, religious young man to the leader of a global terrorist network bent on killing thousands of civilians. We talked about the development of al-Qaeda as an organization. We talked about the U.S. response to al-Qaeda attacks. But we focused especially on what he learned from the 470,000-some files and his interviews that made him change his mind about a few things regarding al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 4th. Peter Bergen reassessing Osama bin Laden. Peter, it is a pleasure to have you back on the Lawfare podcast. I have to ask you to start off here. You've written about bin Laden extensively. Holy War, Inc. is one of the most read books on bin Laden, if not the most read book. So why this full cradle-to-grave biography, and why now?
1: Yeah, good question. I, you know, Part of it was prompted by I teach students at Arizona State, and you know I realized that a lot of them weren't even born on 9/11. For them, 9/11 is as distant an event as the Korean War is for myself or other people of my generation. And one of the bright students asked me, you know, what's the difference between Al Qaeda and the Taliban? And I was like, well, you know, there's quite a lot to unpack there. And then I also realized, you know, people who are volunteering for the U.S. military today weren't born on 9/11 either, or were you know, babies when nine eleven happened. So that was one element. The second element was it was only in dec in late twenty seventeen that the Trump administration uh released in full the four hundred and seventy thousand files uh that were found at bin Laden's Arababad compound by the US Navy SEALs when they did the operation on May second, twenty eleven, that that killed bin Laden. And uh you know there's some quite interesting materials in there, not least what the CIA identified as bin Laden's journal, which turns out to be something a little bit different. It's, it's a bin Laden family journal, which uh, recorded the discussions that the bin Laden family, his two oldest wives and his three adult children were having in the last weeks of his life. And it's kind of a goldmine of material, allowing you to kind of see inside what he was thinking and what his family were thinking in the months before he was killed.
0: All right. So let me start with something you wrote in your new book. You wrote that there's nothing inevitable about bin Laden's transformation over the course of decades from a quiet, humble, religious young man into the leader of a global terrorist network who is intent on killing thousands of civilians. What two or three things can you highlight early in his life, in his teenage years, in his young 20s? up until perhaps the mid 80s, that did put him on that path and set him to the point where he would be bringing together the Al Qaeda organization and declaring fatwas against Americans. What were two or three of those crucial moments early on that reflecting back, you think, did push him toward that trajectory?
1: Well, by his own account, he told his family, his father died when he was 10 in a plane crash. And, and by his own account, to a family member's, that turned him in a more religious direction. He memorized the Quran as a relatively young man, quite a feat of memory since there are 6,000 verses or more in the Quran. He became a kind of religious and pious teenager, fasting twice a week, praying an extra set of prayers as some very devout Muslims do in the middle of the night, more than is required by the Islamic faith. And so, by the time he's a teenager, he's a religious zealot. Uh, now, of course, there are many religious zealots uh, in the world, and very few of them turn to violence. So, that I think that was sort of the beginning. The invasion of the Soviets into Afghanistan in 1979 certainly uh, changed him from a sort of being a, a passive, you know, religious fundamentalist into being some, something much more active. He volunteered to go to Afghanistan. It took him four years to get onto the battlefield. I think that was a pretty transformational moment. In 1984, he went into Afghanistan for the first time. Three years later, he set up something he called the base, Al-Qaeda, in Afghanistan in 1987. It was from that base that he fought the Soviets himself with a group of followers, you know with some bravery. Uh, it had absolutely no impact on the larger war, after all, bin Laden. And his men were a relatively small group with very with no military experience really, while the Afghans were you know there were 175,000 to 250,000 Afghans fighting the Soviets at any given moment. Are some the best estimates we have. There were no more than 300 Arabs fighting in Afghanistan at any given moment, and so they had no impact on the war on the Soviets. But it it certainly transformed Bin Laden from a kind of humble a shy religious religious fundamentalist into somebody who saw himself as a military leader. And from this base in in Afghanistan, he founded al-Qaeda more formally in 1988. So that's another kind of important way station along the road to his radicalization. At this point, he was not, you know, planning to kill American civilians, but he was interested in spreading his holy war to other countries.
0: Let's talk about that transition to wanting to kill American civilians. And and I want to push you on one thing I've always wondered about bin Laden, because you may have more insight into this than anyone else. So bin Laden goes from 1987, when he, he had obviously had the experience in Afghanistan with more to come. But he gave a lecture in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, urging a boycott of all US goods because of US support for Israel. So there was clearly even at that point when he was merely, what would that have been somewhere in his late twenties when he was already thinking that we needed to focus on the United States. But he went from that to December of 1992, when he called the United States the head of the snake and said, we need to strike at the head of the snake and proceeded to do so in Somalia in, in concert with some affiliates there He had his first direct anti-U.S. operation in late 1992 with the hotel bombings in Aden in Yemen. But by 1996 and 1998, he was issuing a declaration of war and then a would-be fatwa along with the World Islamic Front saying that it was the duty of Muslims to resist the United States and it was okay to attack Americans. Now, the big event between 1980. Eighty-seven in the early 1990s, of course, was the invasion of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein and the response of the coalition effort in Saudi Arabia, which bin Laden, at least in his speeches and perhaps in his writings, and this is where you can give us some insight, he seemed to take this as a direct assault on Islam. He even offered to the Saudi officials, I can make my Arab Afghans available. We can come back and fight. And they not so politely pushed him off how much of that was merely rhetorical in later years that he thought that the presence of U.S. troops in the country of Saudi Arabia, though, though not in Mecca and Medina, that the, the presence of U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia truly was a trigger for him to go all out in terms of violence? And how much of it was, in a sense, an excuse for something he was already going down that road toward anyway?
1: I actually think that it wasn't an excuse. You know, as you point out, he was giving lectures in the late 90s in in Saudi Arabia, saying you can't trust the Americans because of their support for Israel and calling for a boycott of American goods. And he would give these speeches pretty regularly. So he was certainly anti-American. But I think that the transformational event was the introduction of U.S. troops into Saudi Arabia, 500,000 of them, including, by the way, women troops, female uh, service uh, personnel that he found particularly offensive, and the reason that he found it so offensive is on his deathbed, the Prophet Muhammad is supposed to have said, "Let there be no two religions in Saudi Arabia." And in, you know, Saudi Arabia was uh, one of the few places in the Middle East that wasn't, you know, directly colonized by European powers. And so, you know, this idea that you couldn't have churches, you couldn't have synagogues in Saudi Arabia. Uh, kind of really originated after the Prophet Muhammad's death. And bin Laden saw the introduction of U.S. troops into Saudi Arabia as really, A, part of a larger American plan to take over the greater Middle East, which he he talked about in kind of study groups uh, and discussion groups that he had in Saudi Arabia around this time. And B, he just thought it contravened the dying words of the Prophet Muhammad. And bin Laden certainly believed himself to be kind of carrying out Actions that the Prophet Muhammad would approve of, he certainly modeled his life on the Prophet Muhammad to the extent that he could, and so I do. I take him at pretty much face value that this was kind of the turning point for him.
0: The flip side that you talk about in the book is uh, really the U.S. reaction to Bin Laden's increasing road towards jihad, such that there were people studying bin Laden at CIA in in the 1990s, writing papers about his finance of terrorist operations and jihad more widely, to the point that by the late 1990s, he is seen as a direct threat to the United States enough that there is a US government operation to render bin Laden in response to some indictments in the spring of 1998. Now, a raid to do that was being planned but did not take place. Can you briefly tell us that story? And if it had taken place just before it was turned off officially, would it have even gotten him at Tarnak Farms?
1: Well, these are some of the big what ifs. I mean, there was was really a kind of very contentious uh, set of plans and discussions at CIA about what to do about bin laden one you know on one side you had mike Scheuer, who was running alex station the bin laden unit who was leaning very strongly forward to do these operations and on the other side you had there's a covert action review group at the cia that would look at these covert actions and kind of basically kind of assess what their likelihood of success was and there was a lot of skepticism among senior cia officials about whether or not you could pull off these raids to kind of capture kill bin laden and that skepticism was also shared by richard clark who was very powerful at the time at the white house because when it came to counterterrorism he had a so you know principal level job meaning that he could he was essentially he had a, a seat at the cabinet table when it came to counterterrorism issues and he was also skeptical of these plans to capture kill bin laden they relied on local afghan tribal assets they would have involved an attack on Bin Laden's Tarnak Farms complex, which had machine gun nests. You know, hundreds of uh, Bin Laden's followers and families living there. Women and children would almost certainly have been collateral damage in the firefight that would have ensued. And you know, it's one of these these debates that can't be entirely settled. These you know ground operations by the tribal assets never happened because they were, as you say, turned off by. George Tennant, and the CIA director, but there were other attempts also to, you know, potentially send cruise missiles at in Balan's direction. Those attacks never happened either because of concerns about the intelligence or collateral damage or both. You you may recall, of course, the destruction of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade based on faulty intelligence. This kind of informed quite a lot of uh, CIA officials were not keen to sign off on operations would might have collateral damage based on imperfect intelligence. And so these strikes never happened. And, uh, you know, the, probably the best moment to kind of kill bin Laden took place when he was at a, at a hunting camp for about a week going in and out having dinner. And, you know, the, the hunting camp was in the middle of the desert. So collateral damage concerns would be much lower. But on the other hand, it became clear through satellite imagery that there was a military plane, a C-130, that was owned by the Emiratis, and it appeared that members of the Emirati royal family were part of this hunting group. So, so that, that never happened either. And you know, Michael Scheuer was ap- apoplectic uh, many times that the, the shot was never taken. And on the other hand, you had folks who were sort of saying, you know, we're, we're going to kill women and children, or we're going to kill me- members of the Emirati royal family. Each of the time that these operations were turned off, there seemed kind like a kind of compelling reason not to take the shot, and the shot was never taken, except the one time, of course, after the U.S. embassy's attacks, cruise missile attacks were uh, directed at al-Qaeda's training camps, but bin Laden was elsewhere.
0: Also in this era, I believe it was in late 1998, after the East African embassy bombings, there was a, a different issue, not necessarily a difference over the risk tolerance or of casualties that were, were not actual combatants in, in Bin Laden's jihad, but but a legal issue, an interpretation over a presidential notification. There was the Executive Order 12333 governing some behaviors of the United States, including a prohibition on assassination, but you note that President Clinton had authorized in a memorandum of notification that it was okay to go after bin Laden and kill him if necessary. But what was the issue over interpreting that language and how did it get in the way of such efforts?
1: Well, it, it definitely got in the way because this memorandum this memorandum's never been made public. Philip Zellico, who was the, director of the staff director of the 9-11 Commission, was allowed to read it, take notes. His impression was that it did allow the CIA to kill bin Laden. But when the CIA inspector general interviewed a lot of people involved uh, later, they were all very convinced that the order um, only allowed them to kill bin Laden during the course of a genuine capture operation, which went wrong. So there was a real disconnect between what the White House thought it ordered, which was, you know, basically, you can kill bin Laden versus what the CIA read, which is, uh, you can only kill Bin Laden in the course of a capture operation. I, I, I haven't read the memorandum; it's not made public. But based on, you know, quite a lot of discussions and 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 public testimony by folks involved in this, I, I think the CIA was right to think that they had a rather elaborate memorandum of of notification, which could have just been if they really intend. You know, I quote uh, Kofa Black, who was the head of the. You know, became the head of the, essentially the hunt bin Laden operation after 9-11, he says, look, if they really wanted to kill bin Laden, President Clinton should have just issued a one-sentence order, kill bin Laden, signed Bill Clinton. That, that order didn't, there's no evidence that such a kind of clear order was ever issued, and it was only on September 17th that George W. Bush ordered a new memor- memorandum of notification that was totally unambiguous and set the course for, you know, kind of uh, much that happened later, including, you know, secret prisons and coercive interrogations and the drone program, etc.
0: Okay, back to bin Laden and Al Qaeda then. We've learned a lot in many different areas surrounding this since the time when I was in the counterterrorist center at CIA in 2001 and 2002, particularly about the strong disagreements among senior al-Qaeda figures and bin Laden allies about the wisdom of the 9-11 attack itself. Talk through the contours of that, if you will, and share with us what the different thinking was and why about the wisdom of conducting the attack and what the attack might bring upon al-Qaeda.
1: Well, there was discussion in 2000, bin Laden had a sort of uh, jihadist summit meeting in Kandahar, which went on for about a week. And it was really a kind of lessons learned discussion about what went right and what went wrong over the past 20 years. And one of the participants was a, somebody called Noman Benopman, who was one of the leaders of the Libyan Islamic fighting group, which was distinct from al Qaeda but kind of allied to it. And he said during this meeting and he was a student of Mao, you know he essentially said, "Look, we've made a mistake. we've never really mobilized the population. If you want to overthrow an unpopular government, you need to have a popular mobilization." And during the Algerian Civil War, which was precipitated by Afghan Arabs who were veterans of the anti-Soviet jihad, you know hundred thousand people died, but uh, the Algerian regime remained in place and he, so he w- he said, "Look we we've kind of failed and then he they moved on to the next discussion, which is the wisdom or not of attacking the United States. and Noma Benoman, who's uh, now living in London, is sort of a, you know basically spoken out against bin Laden uh, on many occasions. He said, you know, if we attack the United States again, they're going to come into Afghanistan and, you know, it's going to be a, it's going to be a, a mess. Bin Laden, who had has a habit of just believing his own sort of views, dogmatic views, kind of smiled at this. And, you know, basically his assumption was the United States was a paper tiger. He told us that when we interviewed him in 97 in CNN, for CNN, he thought that the United States was essentially like the former Soviet Union. And so he dismissed this warning from Noman ben And then there was a further discussion about 9-11 itself within al-Qaeda. Later, Abu Ha'as al-Muritani, who was the religious advisor to bin Laden, advised that the attacks on 9-11 might be against Islam because killing civilians was un-Islamic. Saif al-Adil, who's the military commander of al-Qaeda, was concerned about the likely U.S. response to such an attack. Again, bin Laden ignored this. So there was plenty of you know kind of contention within Al Qaeda about whether or not doing the nine eleven attacks was a smart idea. But Bin Laden just ignored all that. And then after 9-11, there was plenty of reaction from Al Qaeda, not publicly but privately. Abu Musab al-Suri, who had been part of Al Qaeda and uh, knew Bin Laden well, he estimated that of the nineteen hundred Arab fighters who were living in Afghanistan on 9-11, 1,600 of them were killed or captured. As a result of the American response to 9 11. So, you know, there was, there was recognition within Al Qaeda even before the attacks that they may not be that smart, and certainly afterwards that they had essentially decimated the group.
0: One person in particular who has received much attention over the last 20 plus years is Ayman al Zawahiri. In your book, Holy War, you highlighted his influence on bin Laden's thinking. But you've come around a bit since then. Uh, why the change in your view of Zawahiri's influence on bin Laden and his role later within al-Qaeda?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I because Zawahiri appeared publicly with bin Laden at his side, I think it was easy uh, after 9-11. You know, he appeared at a press conference in 98. He appeared in videotapes after 9-11 by bin Laden's side, it was easy to misunderstand his role in al-Qaeda. And as I've reviewed all the evidence, I think Zawahiri's pre-911 role in al-Qaeda was actually very, very minimal. Let's start with kind of the overall strategic role. It was bin Laden who came up with the idea of attacking the United States in order to pressure the United States to pull out of the Middle East so its client regimes in Saudi Arabia and other countries would then collapse. This was not a Zawahiri mm-hmm. idea. This was a a Bin Laden idea, and bin Zawahiri was singularly focused on overthrowing the Egyptian regime of Hosni. Mubarak, Bin Laden could care less about any of that. And if you look at his public statements, you know overwhelmingly the public statements are about the you know U.S. support for the Saudis, uh, the U.S. role in the Middle East. Egypt barely features in any of Bin Laden's public statements, and he just it's not an issue he really cared about. And so there's this, there's the strategic level in the sense that it was bin Laden who came up with the al-Qaeda's big idea, which was attack the United States. And then there, there's also kind of the more tactical level, which is Zawahiri in the pre-911 time period had a tiny group of followers in Afghanistan. At a key moment when the embassy attacks were being planned in Africa, uh, Zawahiri was actually in a jail in Dagestan, basically jailed there by the Russians who had no idea who he was. Uh, Zawahiri had gone to Dagestan essentially to try and Fight in the war in Chechnya, or not fight. I would say get involved in the Chechen conflict. Zawahiri himself is not a fighter, and he got arrested there. He spent six months in jail, and by the time he com- comes back to Afghanistan in late ninety-seven, Zawahiri is a marginal player. He has, according to Afghan Arabs who who knew them both Bin Laden and and, and Zawahiri well, at the time he had maybe five followers, maybe seven followers, maybe ten followers. Yet had no public profile. You know, by then Bin Laden has already been appointed by Mullah Omar to be the leader of the Arabs in Afghanistan. He's a war hero, at least in uh, some segments of the jihadi press. He becomes a you know kind of a, a world celebrity because of the embassy attacks in '98. And Zawahiri is none of this. So I think both on the strategic level and on the tactical level in the pre-9/11 time period, Zawahiri had no impact on Bin Laden's thinking. About attacking the United States. There's no evidence of him being involved in any of the major anti American attacks in the pre 9 11 time period the USS Cole attack, the embassy attacks in Africa in 98, and 9 11 itself. Uh, so, you know, what happened is after 9 11, uh, a number of people wrote saying that Bill, you know, Zawahiri was kind of the brains of the operation. I just think that turns out to be all wrong. Not to say that Zawahiri isn't an important player in Al Qaeda now, of course, he's the leader. But he also, he didn't have the charisma of bin Laden. I think part of the evidence for that is you know, how poorly al-Qaeda is done under Zawahiri's kind of command. Bin Laden had the charismatic presence. Uh, Zawahiri is sort of a black hole of charisma. And so f- for all those different reasons, I think that part of my book is trying to recalibrate how important Zawahiri was, particularly in the pre 9 11 time period. And the answer is, I think he was a marginal player.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's fascinating how much Al-Qaeda, the organization, is a reflection in some ways of bin Laden's personality and experiences growing up. It's a big surprise for many to learn that Al-Qaeda was a highly Bureaucratic organization. Why did this make sense given Bin Laden's previous experiences?
1: You know, uh, Bin Laden studied business administration at university. He started working in his family business when he was in his late teens. You know, when, when he was still in high school, and I, my belief is, as you know, he came out of this business background. He'd worked in his family business, and he bought some of that kind of experience to to al-qaeda uh which did operate in a very bureaucratic manner you know it kept pretty decent records which is one of the reasons we can have this conversation with some degree of certainty you know people had to fill out rather elaborate application forms to join al-qaeda so that i think it's that simple you know terrorist groups you know, to get things done they have to you know organize themselves uh, it can't just be uh, something that's sort of totally ad hoc and and al qaeda i think is a good example of a pretty bureaucratic terrorist group we've learned
0: a lot just in the last few years from that huge trove of documents and other files released after the bin laden raid one of the most interesting perhaps is how bin laden was still managing some might say micromanaging relationships with affiliates from the time after 9-11 and the initial hunt for bin Laden up into the raid in Abbottabad. Talk a little bit about that, bin Laden's management style, and even how he was sometimes quirky and even bizarre with his commands out to various followers and affiliates.
1: Yeah, Bin Laden certainly was my, He was trying to micromanage an organization that was by now global with affiliates, of course, in Yemen, North Africa, Iraq, elsewhere. You know, it's hard to micromanage an organization if you don't have email or phone service. But to the extent that he could, he was. And, you know, the way he did that was by writing very lengthy memos uh, that were transported to the leaders of his affiliates or other al-Qaeda leaders around the world. And, you know, some of these he set strategy, he set tactics, and, and, and at some point he had gratuitous advice. I mean, he um, he was advising uh, al-Qaeda in Yemen, you know, that when they went on operations, they should make sure they had plenty of gas in their tanks of their cars in order to, so they didn't stop at gas stations, which might mean that they might get surveyed by, you know, kind of Yemeni uh, intelligence. And so, you know, he was telling uh, his affiliate in Somalia to grow particular kinds of trees to provide shade. But, you know, more importantly, he was really trying to set strategy. And he, uh, he told al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, them based in Yemen, uh, that they shouldn't try and set up an Islamic state in Yemen. The time wasn't ripe. They weren't ready for that. He nixed the suggestion of appointing Anwar al-Laki, one of the leaders of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, who, of course, was a Yemeni-American. Uh, There was a suggestion that he might become the leader of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And uh, bin Laden nixed that idea. He didn't know al-Awlaki. He may have been perhaps slightly annoyed by al-Awlaki's kind of growing presence. Bin Laden was always a star of the show. But the main thing is he nixed uh, al-Awlaki's appointment as a leader. And al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula went along with these. But, you know, at the same time that he was micromanaging the organization, he was also yeah, he, had, he faced the problem that if you're running a business in the 19th century um, and you can only communicate by messenger, messages would get lost, messages could take a long time to get to their supposed recipient, the reply could not come back. It, it was a hard way to run an organization, but to the extent that he was able to, Bin Laden was certainly trying to micromanage it.
0: And we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that he was also, of course, releasing his video and audio tapes during much of this time, and in so doing, giving out orders to his followers, such as the call for action against the Spanish government, which was followed some six months later by the Madrid train attacks, and I believe the explicit call for attacks on the Saudi oil industry, which was followed about a year later by the attack on the Abqaiq oil facility in the Eastern part of the kingdom. So he was able to, I don't know if manage is the right word, but direct the organization loosely in terms of strategic direction through those releases. And then through these things funneled through his bodyguards, which then got to couriers to give much more specific orders in some cases, like you said, down to the level of gas tanks and types of prayer and types of trees to plant. The Crucial part here, of course, is a story that has become widely known, is that bin Laden, starting just a couple of years after 9-11, didn't have in-person meetings anymore with operatives. Everything went through his bodyguards who ended up buying the house and building the house that he ended up in inside Abbottabad. And you've been to this house. You actually got there after the raid, of course. And before the Pakistanis tore it down so that it would not become a shrine to bin Laden himself. Talk a little bit about both the the physical structure of the house and how it struck you going through it, and also the feeling of being in that place where, where bin Laden for so long had continued to try to run his global jihad.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean- I didn't know that the Pakistani military would demolish the house two weeks after I visited it. They presumably probably already had that plan in mind. I had gone to Pakistan three times to try and get inside the compound because I thought it would help me understand what happened the night of the raid and also kind of how bin Laden was living. And so I was given a tour by ISI, Pakistani's uh, military intelligence, who had control of the compound. And the first thing that struck me was how shabby the place was, you know, and that's not entirely surprising. You know, Bin Laden, his whole life, even when he was, you know, a young man with millions of dollars in his bank account, was living like a pauper. He refused to have air conditioning in places like Sudan and Kandahar, some of the you know hottest places in the world. He wouldn't decorate his houses at all. You know, the kind of color scheme was sort of gray and he did not live a life of luxury at all. And that's true in Abadabad as well the this was a a very kind of rudimentary compound inside they were growing their own crops they had a kind of mini farm uh, so they didn't have to like spend a lot of time outside the compound buying food it was the overall impression was kind of shabby and down at heels you know he had set up a, apartments for each of his three wives he tried try to treat them equitably each wife had a sort of bedroom with uh, a small kitchen stove and a bathroom for her use, and he would sort of rotate between wives every night. On the night of May first, two thousand eleven, he went to bed with his youngest wife, Amal, who was two and a half decades his junior, because it was her turn uh, with the sheikh, as they referred to Bin Laden. And and what happened that night of the U.S. Navy SEAL raid? For those who may have read Cy Hersh's ridiculous story in the London Review of Books, that it was all kind of a setup. You know, I saw considerable destruction at this site caused by, you know, multiple firefights between the US Navy SEALs and the people at the compound, starting with the first bodyguard who they killed and they wounded his wife. Uh, then they went in and they killed another of the bodyguards and also his wife. And then they also killed Khaled, his son. And then of course they killed Bin Laden. So the place was kind of wrecked because there had been a lot of glass that had been broken in the course of these what was after all a pretty violent attack by the U.S. Navy SEALs on the compound. Um, Anyway, so it was interesting to kind of see it all with my own eyes. I've got a better sense of the geography and how how both how the raid went down and also how bin Laden was living.
0: In all of the documents and files that you've been looking over for the past few years, like I mentioned, we've learned a lot about a lot of different areas here. You just mentioned one conspiracy theory, which is that the whole bin Laden raid in Abbottabad was was itself a sham or a setup, something akin to a faked moon landing, or the belief among a very small minority that the 9-11 attacks were, were actually staged. But another conspiracy that, that still does have quite a few people believing in it is that the Pakistani government, at least senior level military and intelligence officials, perhaps even political leaders knew that bin Laden was there for many, many years and simply did nothing about it. What did you see and what did you not see in the documents from the bin Laden raid that makes you think one way or another about this theory so that you don't just trust what the U.S. and Pakistani governments say, but you look at all these documents and what do they tell you or not tell you about the Pakistani role with bin Laden being in that compound?
1: Well, it's a great question, and I, you know, it's hard to prove negatives, but I don't. There's nothing in the documents that show that Bin Laden was in communication with Pakistani officials, or that Pakistani officials had any idea where he was. In fact, the documents show something quite different. Uh, the documents refer to Pakistani officials as apostates, which, of course, is the most grave crime in Islam to basically abjure uh, your religion. They talk about planned military operations against Pakistani targets. As you know, Al Qaeda. Try to kill General Musharraf on at least two occasions when he was running Pakistan. And uh, the Pakistanis had arrested quite a number of key al-Qaeda leaders, not least Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the operational commander of 9-11. So, I mean, the documents, I mentioned that there are 470,000 files. Now, of those files, probably there's 6,000 pages of relevant memos and letters. If bin Laden had a secret Pakistani controller, it goes unmentioned in these documents if, if Bin Laden does is not in communication with any Pakistani officials, and and the documents rather portray a kind of adversarial relationship between Al Qaeda and Pakistan. And I think there's another point, David, that you know Bin Laden was hiding from people in his own compound. One of the wives of the bodyguards had no idea that it was Osama Bin Laden who was living on the compound, even though she lived there herself. Now it's a fairly large compound; it's about an acre in size. But bin Laden was, you know, he was so paranoid about, about everything. Forget about having some secret relationship with a Pakistani official. You know, he was he was hiding from people on his own compound, and he stopped meeting anybody in al-Qaeda after 2003, when Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the operational commander of 9-11, was, was arrested in Rural Pindi, the kind of uh, city that's, that's the headquarters of the Pakistani military. Bin Laden stopped meeting anybody in person uh, from al-Qaeda. So the conspiracy theories are hard to put out of their misery, uh, as you know. They tend to live on, and there, of course, you know, Bin Laden was living just down the road from Pakistan's equivalent of West Point, which is why a lot of you know relatively sensible people say, "Well, surely he must have been protected by the Pakistanis." The answer is there is no evidence for that. Mm-hmm. Let's
0: go to some big themes that are evident from all of these materials that have become recently available. What were the predominant things on bin Laden's mind, kind of his preoccupations, if you will, of the last five years or so of his life regarding al Qaeda's image, regarding protecting members of the organization from US strikes and keeping affiliates in line? What kinds of things was he doing on each of those fronts to basically occupy his time when he couldn't be out there doing things in person himself?
1: well, one of the big themes of the documents is the extent to which bin Laden was freaking out about the CIA drone program. Whatever you think about the drone program, and certainly there were civilian casualties, particularly at the beginning of the program, it was basically destroying his middle management and uh, many of his leaders. Uh, he was you know, thinking about moving al-Qaeda to other parts of Pakistan. You know, Much of al-Qaeda was headquartered in the tribal areas between Pakistan and Afghanistan at the time. And Bin Laden was noodling with the idea of moving them deeper into Pakistan or back into Afghanistan. Uh, Other members of Al-Qaeda were telling him, yeah, we're thinking the same thing. So the drones were certainly very much on his mind. One of his sons, uh, Saad bin Laden, had been killed by a CIA drone in 2009. He was very concerned that uh, that might be the fate of other of his sons who were in the tribal regions. Uh, He was constantly advising them not to travel except on cloudy days when the drones had less visibility. So I think that's point one. Point two, he was extremely concerned about al-Qaeda's record of killing Muslim civilians. When I say al-Qaeda, the affiliates of al-Qaeda, and and also allied groups like the Pakistani Taliban, the documents are full of examples of bin Laden or one of his deputies chastising al-Qaeda affiliates or al-Qaeda allies like the Pakistani Taliban about killing Muslims. And in fact, as the 10th anniversary of 9-11 came into view, bin Laden was thinking of issuing an apology to, it was a sort of a basically rebranding al-Qaeda as a group that would not kill Muslim civilians. After all, the stated goal of al-Qaeda was to protect Muslim civilians. And so, you know, tens of thousands of Muslim civilians have been killed by al-Qaeda and its affiliates in the Muslim world, in Iraq, in Pakistan, elsewhere. I think that was really weighing on his mind. But the big thing that I would say in the last months and weeks of his life, and this comes out of the Bin Laden family journal that was released at the end of 2017, 228 pages of handwritten Arabic, uh, which is kind of difficult to interpret, which I I think hasn't received enough attention from scholars and researchers. But this was an almost daily recording of the discussions between bin Laden and his two older wives, both of whom had PhDs, and also his adult children, two daughters and one son, who basically would gather before dinner every night and sometimes uh, in conversations that would continue after dinner to try and figure out what the hell to say about the Arab Spring. After all, bin Laden's goal was regime change in the Middle East, but he wanted them to re- be replaced by Taliban-style theocracies. And yet the Arab Spring was largely instigated by liberals and also members of the Muslim Brotherhood that bin Laden despised because of their involvement in conventional politics. And, you know, bin Laden's silence during the Arab Spring is pretty, pretty deafening because he didn't really know what to say. So these, you know, Um Hamza, his oldest wife, reappeared in his life. She'd been just in in the last months of his life. His favorite wife, she was 62 uh, at the time. She'd been under house arrest in Iran for almost a decade. And she suddenly came into his life again in February of 2011. And he really kind of regarded her as an intellectual peer. And he kept asking her, you know, what should we say about the 10th anniversary of 9-11? How should we position ourselves? What should we say about the Arab Spring? How can I position myself to be a leader of the Arab Spring? And so the family discussions revolved around what bin Laden could say. Now, the family all believed that bin Laden could deliver a speech and suddenly, you know, having had no role in the Arab Spring, his ideas, his followers were not part of it initially, You know that somehow he could direct it. And his big idea was that He would issue a speech in which he would call for some kind of religious council that would guide the new leaders of the Arab world who who were replacing the Arab dictators. He recorded that speech. It was never released before his death. And two years after his death, Al-Qaeda released it posthumously. But what was really weighing on his mind in the last months of his life was how to respond to the events of the Arab Spring. And then also there was one other thing that he was quite concerned about, which was his two bodyguards were planning to leave him. Now, bear in mind that these bodyguards had been with him for a decade. They spoke Arabic. They spoke for local languages, Pashto and and Urdu, because their family originated in Pakistan. They'd grown up in Kuwait, hence uh, the Kuwaiti was the uh, the kind of nom de guerre of uh, of his main bodyguard. But they were planning to leave. They were fed up with looking after the world's most wanted man, the dangers that came with that, the low pay. Bin Laden was kind of a miser. He was paying them $100 each a month, and they were taking a lot of risks. I mean, so much, and of course, in the end, both of them were killed along with one of their wives. Uh, So they, they were fed up with this, and they were negotiating with Bin Laden to leave him, and he was quite concerned about this because if they left him, he would also have to leave this carefully constructed hideout because the hideout was registered in the name of one of the bodyguards uh, so he was losing his bodyguards, his protectors, his, his his hiding place. And this was also weighing on his mind in the last several months of his life.
0: Understandably so. This had been a safe routine, relatively, that he'd settled into, perhaps less than ideal, but it had worked for quite some time. I know we don't have smoking gun evidence here, but I'm curious for your speculation. Let's say that the Abbottabad raid had not occurred for whatever reason, and In fact, Bin Laden had to make that choice in the months after it would have occurred, because his bodyguards said, "We are done as of this date." What do you think he would have done, and where would he have gone? What was most likely?
1: Well, it's a really good question, and 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 I think it helps put into sharper relief. You know, President Obama began to realize, I think, that the risk with everything and the second-order effects of, of everything, and doing nothing is also a form of a decision, and so. You know, I think President Obama, you know, as as late April came into view, when he made the decision to kind of green light the bin Laden raid, I think part of his, we know from his memoirs and from, you know, my, I, I've discussed it with, with others who were part of this process, there was a concern that he would, that bin Laden would leave. Now, they didn't know that actually bin Laden had agreed with his bodyguards that he could leave as early, that they could separate as early as July 2011 well, we know this from the documents that were covered in Abbottabad. So, you know, where would he have gone? You know, his team had found a 35-year-old Pakistani local guy with some kids who'd had some experience buying and selling properties. He wasn't necessarily part of Al-Qaeda, uh, but they don't, so they'd only profit one person who might be a substitute protector. And then where would he have gone? Who knows? You know, presumably he had some cash that he would have been able to find a place somewhere in northern Pakistan. Um, but but President Obama's decision to kind of pull the trigger on the bin Laden raid, authorizing it, turns out to be all the better decision because we now know that bin Laden was really, he could have separated from his bodyguards as early as July 2011, which would have meant that he would have had to find some other hiding place.
0: Going back before that, there were rumors for years of bin Laden finding a way to get to places as far-flung as Yemen, his family's ancestral home in the Hadramaut, or to the southern Philippines, where al-Qaeda had supported the Islamic insurgency and jihad operations there. Did you find anything in all of these recently released documents that bin Laden was seriously exploring any of those options, or was he really wed to staying in northern Pakistan, or just across the border in Afghanistan?
1: He was really wed to staying in that part of the world. After all, he spent much of his adult life in Pakistan, Afghanistan. He had a network of people he could rely on. He would have been taking tremendous risk to you know, get to Yemen or get to the Philippines, The most one of the most recognizable people in the world. There's nothing in the documents that show that he was planning to go anywhere other than other parts of Pakistan. We know now One of the really useful documents that I drew on for the book was the 200 plus page account by Pakistani investigators into what bin Laden was doing in the post 9-11 period. And it's, I think it's kind of quite a reliable document. Uh, It was leaked to Al Jazeera. It is very critical of the Pakistani government uh, and its feckless response to the US Navy SEAL raid. It's very critical of the Pakistani government and its attempts to kind of find bin Laden or not find bin Laden but you know we build up from that you know bin laden we now know that after the battle of Tora Bora, bin laden didn't go to pakistan and initially he spent a year in kunar in eastern afghanistan which is a very heavily wooded mountainous area a great place to disappear then he went over the border to peshawar a big pakistani city uh, then he went to swat uh, which is a, a a valley not far from islamabad the capital a rather obscure uh, hiding place there then he went to a very provincial obscure city called Haripur for a couple of years, and then he went to Abbottabad. So he kind of basically kept in Pakistan for almost the entire decade that he was on the run. It was an area he knew well. It's a you know, very populous country. He had some kind of support network, uh, not an official support network provided by the government, but people that he could rely on. And so I, there's no evidence that he was planning to, to leave Pakistan. There is some pre-9-11 evidence. I spoke to tribal sheikhs in Yemen in 1997 who'd uh, received a kind of a delegation from bin Laden. And at, at that time, bin Laden was really planning, had a plan B, maybe to go to Yemen if the Taliban ever threw him out. The Yemeni clerics who were kind of part of this delegation talked to the tribal sheikhs. The tribal sheikhs weren't particularly enthusiastic about accepting bin Laden. And nothing ever really came of that. And of course, bin Laden remained in Afghanistan until after 9-11, never went to to Yemen.
0: Let me close with a different version of the question I asked about Zawahiri, but ask it about bin Laden. What is it that in looking at all of this recent material that even someone like you who has been looking at bin Laden and even getting to the interview with bin Laden in the late 1990s for 30 years, almost looking at bin Laden What is it that people still misunderstand the most about him, or something that, with this new information, we we do have a better understanding than the conventional wisdom that was there before?
1: You know, I think one of the striking things is the extent to which bin Laden was relying on his two older wives to to do his thinking for him. You know, bear in mind, I think it might be surprising to listeners that his two oldest wives both had PhDs, uh, one wife aged 62. When Bin Laden was killed, eight years older than Bin Laden, had a PhD in child psychology. Uh, she had also had an independent career teaching deaf-mute children in Saudi Arabia, quite unusual during that time in, in the mid-80s when she married Bin Laden. And the another wife had a PhD in Quranic grammar. Both of them claimed descent from the Prophet Muhammad. Both of them were very religious and knew a great deal about the Quran. And Bin Laden relied on them for advice and to help him think through big problems like how to respond to the Arab Spring. So to me, that's one of the kind of more surprising things that came out of the documents and also the bin Laden family diary, because I think you you, you don't think of bin Laden as somebody who essentially was highly reliant on his wives to do his thinking for him. So that to me, that was one of the surprises of, you know, certainly not something we knew in the years after nine eleven the extent to which his wives played an important role in the way that he dealt with the world.
0: Peter, thanks for joining us again on The Lawfare Podcast. Thank you, Dave. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Spread the word about The Lawfare Podcast by sharing it with friends or by rating it wherever it is you get your podcasts. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pacha Howell. Hamza Shatou is our audio engineer and Sophia Yan performed our music.